Hello, I'm Sarah Vine and this is Sarah Vine's Female Half Hour. I'm joined for the first ever episode of my exciting new weekly podcast from Mel Plus by my friend Imogen Edwards-Jones. I should say friend and author. She's not just my friend, she does have a job. Um, <laughs> who will be talking me through this week's most important stories. Imogen, how are you? I'm fine. Very well indeed, thank you. Which one of your three books is going best at the moment? They're all terrible. Absolutely <laughs> terrible. It's like pulling teeth and nasal hair at the same time. Great. Well, we've all been doing that in lockdown. We have, yes. <laughs> anyway, coming up on the show, could a new wonder drug help you shed those lockdown pounds? We talked to an expert about semaglutide, which is taking the weight loss world by storm. Eurovision. I hate it. I'm delighted we didn't win because the last thing we want to do is to have to host the bloody thing. <laughs> but apparently I'm wrong. Everyone tells me I'm wrong, including Imogen, who loves it. We have got Jackie Stevens, male columnist and Eurovision lover, who I'm told has watched this episode both in Spanish and in English. So she really is a sucker for punishment. And she is going to try and change my mind. It won't work. And we will be joined by the amazing Jackie Weaver, who shot fame for exercising her authority at a local council meeting. You have no authority here, Imogen Edwards-Jones. Are you looking forward to speaking to Jackie? I can't wait mm. to speak to ja the Jackie Weaver. The Jackie Weaver. And finally, what's written in the stars for us when lockdown lifts on the 21st of June? I'm desperate to know. Are we going to be able to never have to lock down again? But first, women, we have been more likely to lose our jobs, take on the homeschooling, and we have been forced to dye our own hair, and in my case, try and pluck my own eyebrows, which has not been a success. Why women have been hit hardest by the lockdown. So this show is called The Female Half Hour for a reason. It's to talk about the ladies and the women. And in particular today, I want to talk about lockdown and women i think there's a general consensus in the world that women have had pretty bad time during lockdown because basically it's all slightly fallen on our shoulders well i think i think it was like a return to the 1950s yeah because you couldn't get out you couldn't do anything and everyone looked to you to create Lunch, yes. supper. Lunch. Do you remember that? Oh, Constant. Lunch. What's for lunch? I don't know. I'm working. Go and look yeah. in the fridge. I don't, I don't even eat lunch. No. So, well, no one does because we want to be thin. Yeah, obviously. obviously. Did <laughs> you have that thing which I had, which was every single person in the house wanted different types of food? Oh, yes, yeah. And my daughter decided, I mean, at various stages, my daughter decided she was going to be vegan. Yes. And then she was only going to eat chicken. And then she wasn't going to eat chicken. She was only going to eat fish. And then she watched a film about some fish. And then she wasn't. Ever, and I just, I, it was like being a short order chef. The whole yes, time, whilst yes. having to work, but it yes. was just, and they took up all the Wi-Fi. Yeah, all the Wi-Fi, all the food. It's like having the tiger who yeah. came to tea. That I find incredibly difficult. I think the close proximity of everyone on top of each other, and the idea that you had to were in charge of getting the food in. Mm. Nobody did any of the shopping no. apart from you. So it really was a return to the 1950s. And there was no intellectual space to be able to do anything no. else. Uh, particularly, I was homeschooling. Two children, as were you. Mm. Mine was quite young, the youngest. Mm. And I was. we were trying to do our jobs at the same time yeah. because it's not as though the job went away. No. So it was like, it was a really horrific way of having it all whilst trapped in a house. It was having nothing. Having nothing. <laughs> it was just awful. And then by the time it reached six o'clock, no wonder, the first thing you did was open a bottle of wine. And well, this is it. Apparently women have been drinking so much during lockdown and also we've also got fat. 
God. It's quite boring, isn't it? Yeah. It's so boring. And there was all these pieces being written about people pulling together and stuff. Oh, no. I know one in my house pulled together. I did all the work. No. And they basically just waited for me to sort everything out. Yes, they did. There was My children once did an impression of me, <laughs> which was every time I went to the sort of kitchen bar area, I'd stand there and go, <sighs> will somebody help me? <laughs> Anyway, we're actually going to be joined by an expert on this, because obviously our reminiscences have no basis, in fact. So we're joined now by Sarah Smith, who is a professor of economics at the University of Bristol and who has written about the damage to women in this past year. She's calling for a strategy to help mitigate the damage. Sarah, hi, thank you for joining us. Hi, no, no problem, nice to be with you. So tell me about the so-called she session. It's not a very nice word, is it? <laughs> I think it's called she session to contrast with the effects some of the previous recessions that we've had, which have hit tend to hit men uh, more badly. If you look at the overall unemployment, then men and women tend to be affected fairly equally, actually. So it's not necessarily the case that women are more likely to be employed. So women have tended to be in sectors which have been quite adversely hit by the lockdown, particularly working in the service sector. But they've also they also work quite a lot as key workers. So overall, the employment, the sort of gender employment effect has been quite neutral. So we can't really say that women are more likely to lose their jobs. Um, when you look at who was on furlough and who sort of reduced their hours, in, in that case, it tends to be women who were more likely to go on furlough, and women's working hours haven't just didn't jump back as much as mm, men. Mm. And I think that's really linked to the kind of the childcare yeah. impact of the lockdown and the closure of schools. I mean, I think that that's been the absolute sort of pivot, hasn't it? This has been the source of all of the stress for women, which is having to combine the sort of you know all the domestic stuff with carrying on working and and you know impossible to do the two and in fact i think that the closure of the schools was a real problem for women i think it affected women much more so than it did men it did i mean i i felt throughout that, that you know schools should have been considered a, an essential service and they never were yeah no so so i mean i i was kind of interested in wondering whether you know this was a because it was so dramatic uh, the closure of schools and you also had you know sort of sort of changes impacting on people's employment whether we'd see sort of some radical revolution in gender roles and we'd suddenly have men and women sharing the burden equally but it turned out to be nothing like that and the pattern of the division of labor in terms of childcare was very very similar to the sort of gender division that you see sort of on a day-to-day basis which is pretty much men doing one-third women doing two-thirds yeah, and I think if anything, it's become entrenched, hasn't it? Well, yeah, well, what they're doing was two thirds of just a massively increased burden. Mm. I mean, the sort of volume of childcare that people were suddenly required to do was just enormous. Sarah, Sarah, can I just ask you, the sort of impact on women's mental health in the idea that because we are all fed the line that everyone's making banana bread and, uh, and you know, being successfully bonding with their family, with the people who found it incredibly difficult and who, would, who never went managed to make a piece of toast let alone a thing of banana bread yeah. and, you know, the idea of having a failed lockdown rather than a successful lockdown yeah there was this whole sort of domestic goddess thing going yeah. on wasn't there yes. which I found really hard work because actually I didn't feel at all like a domestic goddess I felt like I was just completely running from pillar to post yeah I mean I mean I you know I think mental health is a really good sort of measure of have you know the combined impact of everything that's happened in lockdown on men and women and we definitely have seen women's mental health suffer more than men's. I mean, actually, you know, so, so the, the, the kind of the working mothers for kids are the group who've had, you know, the juggling and the stress. But actually, the mental health declines have been also 
bad and in fact even worse among young women yeah. so we're sort of talking teenagers and sort of those in their 20s and also I think we mustn't forget older women because of course you know one of the, the big impacts of the pandemic is actually the number of people who've died and the huge loss that people have experienced mm. so I think for for women we've seen profound impacts across all age groups well I think I think particularly the sandwich generation of women mm. have really had it bad because we've been dealing with all the neuroses of our sort of teenage children and also with the fact that our parents have been well in many cases they've been sort of locked down haven't they I mean yeah. my parents have been completely isolated and my children have you know had quite a difficult time because of their ages and and a lot of my daughter's friends who are sort of 18 17 18 have, have started you know there's been terrible sort of rise in self-harm and eating and, and eating disorders and one of them actually you know committed suicide and it was awful oh, I mean it's been really really very difficult I mean have you got any data on all of that well certainly I mean in terms of the mental health I think we've um that that that's shown in the data and I think you're right in identifying a lack of routine and a loss of kind of regular contact which I think is particularly important for young girls so you know, we had lockdown, then things went back to normal, and then we had lockdown again. And you could see mental health tracking with the with the lockdown. So lockdowns in particular are, are, are very bad for kind of young women. And Sarah, so do you have a, I mean, what's your vision? How do you think we can try and sort of claw some of this back? Um, well, I think certainly think focusing on the juggling generation. I think it's absolutely crucial that employers recognise, um, you know, the, the impact of the extra childcare on women's careers. Mm. So, you know, in, in my own sector in academia, you've just seen men surging ahead and publishing far more mm. papers on COVID than women. And, you know, so when it comes to promotion, it's going to be, you know, possibly the men who go forward and the women don't, unless, you know, the extra burden of childcare is explicitly recognised. And I hope other employers do that too. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It was lovely to speak to you. <laughs> thank you. That was Professor Sarah Smith, economist at the University of Bristol. So, Britain got nul point at the Eurovision Song Contest. Imogen, I was delighted with that result. How did you feel? I was a little bit, I thought it was a little bit mean. I thought he could have got about three points. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I did quite like main skin or man skin. Or foreskin, Four as skin. I think I'm going to rename them. <laughs> they were very good. Well, they weren't. They were absolutely terrible. But in the true camp style yeah, of they Eurovision, explosions. they had, you know, some tight leather trousers on and a quite handsome young man. What yeah. more do you need no. on a Saturday night? Who was? Uh, yes, he was very lively, as it turns out. Yes, he was very yes, lively. He was very lovely. But I personally thought it was quite good that we lost because the last thing we want to do is to win it because then we'd have to host it. But also, I really hate the Eurovision Song Contest, and I know everyone thinks it's a fantastic kitsch fest and we're all supposed to love it and get really excited about it. But I just, I just don't understand it. I think you're a bit boring. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> we're joined by my lovely colleague Jackie Stephen, who is in Spain, presumably, I don't know, pursuing some. Eurovision Song Contest tell person. Um, well, no, but I was watching it all the time. I even watched every Spanish entry in the afternoon leading up to it. OK, well, you are obviously a masochist. Um, anyway, Jackie is going to try and persuade me in a segment that my producer has hilariously called Change Vine's Mind. See what they did there? That it is, in fact, brilliant. So, Jackie, take it away. Easy. What other event allows you to vent your 
inner xenophobia and poke fun at other countries without the risk of losing your job or being banged up? Are the Belgians boring? Do Iceland have bad dress sense? Do Russian women look like Russian dolls? The fat outer one, not the inner one. Does everyone now hate Britain? Yes, yes, yes and yes. It's the only international event like no other where we can come together and just vent our fury about everyone and everything and we have no fear. It's the least woke thing out there and we love it. And for those of us by ourselves, it's a huge social gathering. It's the European thong contest. We just want to see naked people in ridiculous costumes. We have it on social media. We can talk about TV in the way we used to talk about TV, about what happened the night before. We don't have that anymore because we've got binge viewing. And this was an occasion where we all got together after the year that we've had with COVID, not being able to get together with our mates. It was just brilliant to have the time and the fun gatherings that we used to have and I loved every minute of it. Jackie, Jackie, can I just say, you have changed Vine's mind. That <laughs> oh was actually goodness. brilliant. That was actually brilliant. It was rocking. It, it was, was rocking. rocking. Imogen and I were doing the <laughs> thumbs up throughout the entire yes. thing. I lo- <laughs> it's so, yes, no, you're right. Absolutely. It's bare pit television. <laughs> it's bare pit television yeah. and we don't get that anymore, do yeah. we? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> I changed Vine's mind. I'm really excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You're absolutely right, of course. And I, I, I think I'm just a grumpy old cow. Yes, I, yeah. I think that's basically it. Where's your joie de vivre, and Sarah? I don't have any joie de vivre anymore. <laughs> that was Jackie Stephen, male TV critic and Eurovision superfan. The Zoom meeting of Hanforth Parish Council's Planning and Environmental Committee went viral in February, rocketing Jackie Weaver into fame. You'll all remember Jackie as calm and collected chair of the meeting, which descended into chaos as a bunch of men argued over who has the authority. It wasn't Jackie Weaver. If you disrupt this meeting, I will have to remove you from it. You can't. It's only the chairman who can remove people from a meeting. You have no authority here, Jackie Weaver. No authority at all. Jackie Weaver, Cheshire Association of Local Councils clerk and keeper of decorum, joins me now. Jackie, welcome to the show. It's very lovely to have you. Hello, Sarah. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So how does it feel? Because most people, when they become famous, they get a bit of a run-up to it, don't they? I mean, they sort of know that they're doing stuff that's going to make, make them famous. But you literally became famous in seconds. How was that? Well, I, they do say ignorance is bliss. So if you start off by not knowing much about the internet or social media, etc., then it all kind of just kind of floats over your head a little bit. So you know, somebody said to me, uh, sent me a text, um, a more savvy friend, uh, said that I was, uh, first of all, trending number three. You know how you do that slightly embarrassed thing of going, <laughs> oh, that's nice. You've got a clue what well, well, yeah, talking well, about. No idea what that means, but I'm sure it's lovely. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. Lovely, yeah. And then they uh, text me a little bit later saying, yeah, trending number one. And again, that meant just about as much to me as trending number three. <laughs> um, and really, I was tired. I went to bed, you know, never gave it any more thought until the following morning when, um, you know, there were camera vans and um, lots of lovely um, reporters <laughs> parked outside making the neighbours think we had, in fact, done something and buried them in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me tell me a little bit about your podcast it's a lovely opportunity to have um, literally a natter mm. with some lovely people and we just see where it goes we answer the questions and um, that people put in the chat of uh, twitter 
Um, and we're answering the questions you didn't know you needed the answer to. Okay. <laughs> That's a very good idea. It's basically a bit like this show, I'd say. What is your book, dear? What are you doing with your book? I'm a writer, so I'm interested to hear. I, I've, I've often watched telly, read the papers, etc., and thought to myself, do you know, what is missing is common sense. Oh, yes, that's um, true. Um, I like, yeah, I like to think it is a, it's not, it's not what it's called, that it's um, still work in progress in, in terms of the title, but I like to think it is a little book of common sense. You know, just kind of putting things back into perspective. Yes. Yes, like my columns, really, I think. <laughs> well, I, I, clearly, I am simply following in your shoes, Sarah. <laughs> I'm joking. I really am joking. I, I mean, one of the things I feel very strongly about is, is we keep telling everyone they're special. And it's like, well, it's OK just to be ordinary. Yes. You know, yes. It, it, you know, what a lot of pressure there is putting on people to say that, you know, you've always got to be special. Well, no, you don't. Ordinary is good. When I watched the uh, parish council meeting a thousand times over, which I did, it, what struck me about it was there were two things. One, which was that it was what we were all going through in some way, shape or form in our lives, basically having to have absurd conversations with people on an absurd platform that we didn't really know how to use. I think that's one of the reasons it sort of captured the national imagination so much. But the other thing that really struck me was the way that you were so comprehensively patronised by all those men. I mean, it was just, it really was just, I think lots of women have had that. Uh, and we all recognise that moment where where they are just so alive with their own sort of pomposity. And I mean, it is the sort of destiny of women in politics at every level, whether they're, you know, the Home Secretary or the Prime Minister, to be patronised by angry, red-faced men, is it not? There certainly seems to be more of it about than you would hope for. <laughs> I mean, it, it is, um, I guess, that I'd put it down to men having poorer communication skills than us girls. Mm. And if a man's not getting his point across, then they, they tend to just, you know, do that thing that we do with foreign tourists. We talk a little louder. I also think, thought the camera angles were particularly delightful. They're all sitting there with their cameras going up their noses, which was also, I nasal think... Hair. Nasal, nasal hair. Nasal hair. It's I, been a theme. Yeah, which I think made it all the more compelling, I think. And come on, no matter what age you are, it doesn't take two of you to operate an iPad. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. So where can we find the podcast? Is it a where I don't know where podcasts... Oh, um, Oh, people who know know. Okay. Um, and you'll find me at Jackie Weaver Pod. My producers are laughing because obviously they know where all the podcasts live on the internet. You and I don't, yeah, even we though we do one. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jackie Weaver, who, after all, turns out does have the authority. You're listening to the Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine. You can find us for free and in full on Mail Plus, along with all our other podcasts and video series. So Imogen, um, have you put on any weight during lockdown? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think quite a lot of us have. Um, and, and that's how I'm introducing the next item in mm. the show, which is that recently there's been a number of sort of treatments that have come out that show incredible success in getting people to lose weight. Now, we all know that obesity is a huge problem, getting bigger by the moment, and I want to talk about something called semaglutide, which is an anti-diabetic medication used for the treatment of type 2 diabetes, but it has also been trialled as a weight loss drug, and with huge success. Uh, it's a once-a-week injection, 
And in an American study, a big American study, actually, over a 68-week period, the average semaglutide user lost 15% of their body weight. Gosh, that's good, isn't it? So I have to make a confession to make, which is that I'm on it. And is it working? Well, it's you look brilliant. great. So, I yes. have lost quite a lot of weight. I, I mean, I'm a classic person. Apparently, there's a new definition. There's a sort of... There's people, basically, who are not... not Fat, fat, mm. but sort of just quite a lot fat, a bit fat, too fat, but not massively fat. And right. I'm that person, basically. So it's slightly chunky. Yes. So sort of, yeah, exactly. Right. Not plus size, exactly, yeah. but sort of extra size. And I try to, I, when I, you know, I've always you tried to, try to I, lose I, you, lots you know, of, you've yes, known me for a long time, mm. you know, I've always had a problem with my weight because I have a very underactive thyroid mm. and also I eat too much. No, you actually don't, though. <laughs> no. I actually don't think you do no. eat too much. No, my children say they've never actually seen me eat. No. But anyway, yeah. I have a problem with my weight. Yeah. I admit it. And so I, I did a, I did make a big effort when I was about, about three years ago because I suddenly realised that if I didn't do something about it now, I was just going to end up being fat for the rest of my life, which was bad for me. And I went off and I lost some weight and then it started to come back on again. So I went to see a bariatric surgeon with the intention of getting a gastric sleeve. Right. that oh, would okay. help. Yeah. And gastric sleeve is reversible. It just reduces mm. the side of your stomach, so it allows you to take the weight off. And he said, no, 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 I'm going to put you on this thing. But you weren't fat enough, though. No, I wasn't fat enough. No. He said I wasn't fat enough. It's the first time anyone's ever said I wasn't <laughs> yes, fat I enough. I was very happy. I, I'd I, like to, we, I, I said, can I have that in writing, that. please, yes. I said. Yeah. Um, anyway, he put me on this thing, and it's actually called a Zempic. Right. It's the trade name. Semaglutide is the sort of medical name. And it's very slow, but what it's brilliant—it's brilliant because it works on the hormone, the hunger hormones in your stomach, and basically it makes you feel when you start eating, you get hungry like a normal person. Mm. No, it doesn't change any of that. You still get hungry, but when you start eating, it's as though you've already sort of eaten Half a third of a food, a third of a plate, right. basically. So you just eat basically pretty much a third less, I would say, in my case. So it's very slow, mm. and you can eat whatever you want. You don't have to go on any sort of fattiness. And I have, you know, got back into my sort of, you know, good weight range through taking this. It's also made you much happier, much I think. Much happier. Mm. My goodness me, what it's done has, it's transformed, it's been life, it has genuinely been life changing. Because for the first time ever, well, for the first time since I was about 12, mm. I'm not scared of food. And food isn't an issue and I don't think about it at all. You know, before I was always thinking about food. Am I having too much of it? Should I have? Can I have some? When can I have some more food? I don't think about food. Food is literally just fuel for me now. That's amazing. It's totally rewired my relationship with food and the way my brain thinks about food. Where can we get it then? <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, so we are going to be joined by a consultant physician for obesity, diabetes, and endocrinology at the London Obesity Clinic. Hello, Dr. Radisharan. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Hi, Sarah. So I just wanted to chat to you about uh, semaglutide, which I think is also known as Ozempic in the UK. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes. And um, you are a consultant physician at the London Obesity Clinic. And have you, have you been using this drug for a long time? Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how it works and what it does? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been using it for some time both at the London Obesity Clinic and uh, also in the NHS. So semaglutide is actually a hormone um, called glucagon-like peptide. So the hormone glucagon-like peptide is normally produced by our body. So whenever we eat food, this hormone is produced by the lining of the intestines, and it tells our brain um, to reduce the amount of food we eat, and also tells our pancreas to produce more insulin. 
So basically, it brings about a sensation of fullness. Mm. And have you been using it in the NHS? What sort of patients do you find benefit from it most? So currently what we're doing is we are using it for patients who have got diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Right, which is the obesity-caused one. Yeah, the, the, most people with type 2 diabetes have got a weight problem. So it helps that group of people. Yes, and they get that little boost and presumably it enables them to perhaps make some lifestyle changes that will then sort of consolidate the work that the drug is doing. Is right. And do you think in terms of the sort of obesity epidemic and trying to sort of tackle that, the government's been very, you know, vocal about the desire to do that, especially with COVID-19. Do you think that, that something like this is a, is a useful tool? I mean, I think a lot of the debate around obesity centres on the sort of moral aspects of it and sort of blaming people for being fat rather than trying to sort of deal with the problem itself. I mean, do you think it would be a sort of worth looking at as a, as a as a sort of method of of trying to reduce the obesity problem in a relatively short space of time? So semaglutaronic can be used only as an adjunct to lifestyle changes. Mm-hmm. So this is not going to change the life of everybody. It can all the research shows that only when you use it along with lifestyle changes, it's going to help people. What we are trying to do is telling people what to do and which is the wrong thing. Everybody is intelligent. They're not dumb. They know what to eat. They know how to exercise. As healthcare professionals, the government should help to find out why are they doing it. And that's the key. What do you think the cause is of the obesity crisis? Do you have a view on that? I mean, a clinical view. Yes. So the hunger pattern has changed. And these diets, whatever diets have been going on for so long, all these uh, calorie restrictive diets, they in fact have changed the basal metabolic rate. So people have become more efficient. The body has become more efficient. So nearly half the population of, of people with obesity have been to some form of diet and any new diet doesn't work. So that's actually triggering of obesity. The next thing is mental health problems. So when we talk about mental health, we always think about something extreme, which is a wrong thing to do. Even mood disorders, uh, anxiety, these things have to, have to be taken seriously. Hmm. So, so, so as you're, there's no silver bullet, but presumably something like semaglutide can actually just help. It can be a sort of it can be one of the mechanisms that we can use to help exactly, people. Exactly. Yeah. This is definitely should be considered. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's been incredibly helpful and really interesting. And I think this is something that we're definitely going to come back to. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That was Dr. Chinadurai Rajwaran from the London Obesity Clinic. I thought that was fascinating, Imogen, didn't you? I thought he was gripping. He was really, really interesting. Really onions, didn't he? Yeah, I also I love the idea that dieting makes you fat, was it basically what well, you said. Well, I mean, yeah. the thing is, this is so true of me, because always I've tried to, be, I've always been, I was always on diets mm. in my 20s and 30s. And I was always trying to keep my weight down, keep my weight down, keep my weight down. Even when I look back at pictures of myself and I wasn't overweight at all, I just had this sort of expectation of being a skinny, mm. which I could never quite achieve. And I think there's something about that. Your your body becomes, as he said... More becomes, efficient. Becomes more efficient with the calories. I know. Yeah, I thought it was absolutely yeah, amazing. Just, and yeah, I, I thought that was absolutely interesting. What he said about depression, I thought, was yeah. also very good. Yes. Not depression, but just mental health. Because I, I do think that obesity is, in the same way that anorexia is, a function of people who are unhappy it's a form of misery isn't it yes it's a form of misery i think i think but the way the way what he talked about was when people said uh 
he said that people aren't stupid, so they they, yeah. they know that what they're doing is making them unhappy. Yeah. What they don't have is the tools to to move themselves forward yeah. or off the sofa. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? They, they, yeah. And I know, and you know that thing when you go on a diet or when you try and lose weight and you succeed, how how great you feel. Well, it's an empowering. Isn't isn't it? It? Very empowering, and it really urges you on. And I think that's what this thing, this semaglutide, has done for me, which is that it got me past that hump, that mm. sort of plateau where I thought, oh, this is pointless. I'm just going to give up, and just carried on. And it has really changed fundamentally the way I view food. And finally, my favourite part of the show, we're joined by Teresa Chung, who is an astrologer. Imogen, I know you like a bit of woo-woo. I do indeed. That is very exciting. We uh, both love a bit of woo-woo. Yes. So she's ritual <laughs> and spirituality expert. Yes. Yes. Wow. Teresa, hello. How are you? Hello. I'm full of it because it's a full moon, as you would expect. Going crazy here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so we're all, the only thing anyone's talking about actually is lockdown lifting on the 21st of June. Is that going to happen? Yes. Or are we going to be invaded by aliens instead? I don't know. <laughs> Tell us all. June, June the 4th is going to be a very tense day because we've got Saturn and Uranus squares. And, you know, Uranus is all about shock and change and mm. Saturn is tradition. And when they're kind of like in opposition like that, there's a struggle. So I'm thinking that date might bring some shocks and surprises for us. Oh, God. I'll make a note not I'm to get up. I'm writing it down. I'm writing <laughs> that down now. <laughs> But, you know, it's almost like, you know, you say we're not in tune with the with the planets and everything. It's almost like the politicians know, because how come they're lifting on summer solstice, the longest day of the year when we let the sunlight back in? Yes. And and that week before, when they say kind of a formal decision will be made, is when we've got this all about change and, and question marks. It's You know, people don't realise how unconsciously they tune into all this. And also we're coming out of, on the June the 22nd, we'll be coming out of three of Mercury retrograde, which is all about... Right. Oh. You see, I love that because I was talking about technological issues and what happened. Yeah, that was the mech, that was your actual Mercury retrograde. <laughs> it was. It was. For the, for, the per, for, the, for the benefit of the listeners, we lost Teresa just as she said Mercury retrograde and the lines went down. I think that's quite spooky. It is that's very spooky. Brilliant. And I honestly, I didn't do that. I just, I, yeah. honestly, that's incredible. <laughs> that's what they all say, Teresa. Can I, can I ask you a question? Yes. So you, the, this full moon, uh, it's supposed to be a red moon, isn't that right? Super blood. Yes, super blood. Super blood moon. Creepy to me. It does. So what does that mean? I've I've read that it's supposed to be something like secrets hiding in plain sight. Is that true? I don't know. It's going to be a, a fantastic um, opportunity to release things that are toxic in your life. However, whenever you do that, you open yourself up to you wounding yourself in a way, pulling this out. So be careful to take care of yourself. It's a very sensitive time now. So please take care of yourself. And I, I expect there'll be quite a lot of emotions and tears around now. Now is not a time to have a bee talk. Wait a few days. Oh, okay. <laughs> and I always find, you know, that I'm much more excitable when the moon's full. Um, it just happens. So you, you don't tend to check things as carefully. You're a bit more, you know, you know, a bit more casual. You say things you maybe regret. Just, just think before you speak, I would say, for the next day or so. Hmm. Well, that's going to be difficult for me. <laughs> so I never t- 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 think I've ever done that. Good grief. Um, but, you know, back to June the 21st. Yeah. I mean, it, it looks positive. Yes, all the signs are that it's going to happen. However, however, it's not going to be as fortunate and as joyful as we would hope. 
um, because Jupiter's retrograde in Pisces, and that's going to cause a little bit less luck and good fortune. And the way forward is we've all got to trust our intuition because there is a chance of, of real conflict and intensity at that period. It's not going to be like, oh, we all immediately step into it with a hop and a skip and it's going to be great. It's going to be quite a period of transition. So just be careful for that. But with any kind of crisis and transition, there's also opportunities for great personal growth. But harsh reality might sink in, especially around June the 25th, when Neptune goes retrograde. That's a time also when, you know, harsh reality, we need to, to reflect a bit. I think we might have a little bit of a honeymoon period. Can't we stop all these planets from going retrograde? <laughs> no, they do. They That's do. so rude. <laughs> Mercury's always retrograde, as far as this I can work rude. out. It's rude, yeah. honestly. Why can't they just go, know, but go forward? It's a whopping three weeks, May the 29th <laughs> to about June the 21st, 22nd, to coincide with lifting of restrictions. Isn't that wonderful? And I think Boris Johnson must be consulting an astrologer. Yeah. I mean, might as well. I mean, the way Sage has been, have been getting things wrong, they might as well consult an astrologer, frankly. Yeah, but they used to. They, the, uh, Queen Elizabeth had her own yes. first. The first had yes. her own astrologer. That was the way it was done in those days. John D. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it's almost like he has consulted one to choose the summer solstice. Well, on that note, I shall say goodbye and hopefully we shall speak again next week. Take care. Bye-bye. That was Teresa Chung, dreams, ritual and spirituality expert. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, why not visit mailplus.co.uk slash subscribe to get access to all our podcasts, videos, opinion pieces and more. And if you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus or you can find me at Westminster Wag. You've been listening to The Female Half Hour with me, Sarah Vine and Imogen Edwards-Jones. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. Sarah.